Brothers and sisters, I would invite you to stand again, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 912. Acts chapter 4, we'll be reading from verses 21 or 23 through 31. Again, please pay special attention to the reading of God's word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this text that we have here before us in Acts, this reminder of your people gathering together, praying boldly for the word of God to go forth. Lord, we ask that that would happen here this morning, that your word would be declared boldly, that you would give us ears to hear. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we often get excited about firsts, don't we? About first things. A baby speaking their first words, competition between mom and dad, right? What's, is it going to be mama or dada? And then whatever that first word is, there's a a lot of excitement. Babies taking their first steps and first birthdays, right? All these milestones we see, we've all experienced in our own lives. I remember for me, the first time that I flew on an airplane, I was 19. I was going to Alaska on a mission trip. My friend AJ and I, he was a couple years older than me, and neither of us had flown before. And it was just like, well, we're finally flying. You know, we're adults, and we're, we're finally flying on a plane. It was just this exciting time. And there's always a bit of excitement in a conversation when you hear someone say, this is the first time that I fill in the blank, right? First time I went to the Grand Canyon, first time I I did something. There's always that kind of, you kind of like want to lean in, right? And and hear what's, what's going on. Well, there are a lot of firsts in the book of Acts. We've seen a couple of them already. We're going to be seeing a lot more of them. 
We saw in chapter two, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and we said that was the first Christian sermon, right? The first post-resurrection and ascension sermon that we have recorded. Chapter four, what we saw last week is the first outright opposition to the gospel. And now we see here today in this text in chapter four, the first prayer meeting. Now, no doubt there's been praying going on. We saw that at the end of chapter two, but this is the first recording that, that we have of, of how the saints prayed and what they prayed. So this is really the first recording that we have. So we could say this is the first recorded Christian prayer meeting. Now, just to give a little recap of where we've been, we have seen in chapter three, kind of some recap of chapters three and four, because this all kind of flows together. We've seen this lame man be healed in chapter three. We've seen the wonder of the people that, that God would, would do this miracle. Uh, we saw Peter's message to them at the end of, in the last section of chapter three, calling them, uh, the leaders, to repent. And then there is the reminder that in chapter four, that there is salvation only found in Christ. What we see in these sections is a bit of, uh, there are responses to things that are happening, responses and, to re and reactions to things. So we're going to be kind of in that cycle of responses and reactions. Notice that what we see here, our, our response or our reaction here is a response to opposition. Opposition that the apostles and the early believers face is what leads to this first prayer meeting happening. Is that our initial thought in the midst of hardship and persecution? That we need to pray, right? Something difficult happens, there's some opposition. Do we try to like strategize and say, what do we need to do in response to this? Or do we just say, let's pray, right? Let's get together, let's cry out to God and pray. I think we'll be challenged by this passage today. This passage begins with two responses in verses 23 through the first part of 24. The first response is that after they were released, they went to their friends. They go and they report to them what had happened, what the chief priests and the authorities, what we saw earlier in the chapter, they report what they said. The second response is in verse 24. When they heard it, when all those who were gathered heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. They cried out to God in prayer. They heard about the threat that was given earlier in verse 17 and 18. The leader said, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. So that was the threat. And here is now how they respond. They respond to that threat by crying out to God, by lifting up their voices in prayer to God. So the response is prayer. This is a model prayer. Sermon title is how then or how should we then pray? A little play on uh, Francis Schaeffer's how should we then live? How should we then pray? And my argument from this text pretty clearly is that we must cry out to the sovereign Lord for boldness to speak the word of God. We must cry out to the sovereign Lord for boldness to speak the word of God. That's what we see here in Acts, and that's what we must do as well. 
I think we must first confess that prayer is difficult, isn't it? It's easy to like talk about prayer, to say we know we want to pray, but praying on our own, sometimes even gathering together for prayer is difficult. As we've already mentioned, self-reliance is much easier, right? We can plan and we can scheme and we can do all the things that we think will, will help our situation. But do we take time to slow down, to take refuge in God, to rest in him and to cry out to him? Our natural response is just to do it ourselves, right? To rely on ourselves. We need help from God and we need help from his spirit. Paul in Romans chapter 8 talks about crying out to God in the spirit of God, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba is going to be our acronym for, if you're taking notes today, we're going to use ABBA for how we should cry out to God. And I think we see these things all pretty clearly in this text. The first thing is that we should pray adoringly. We should pray adoringly. The response of adoration we already saw earlier in chapter 4 in verse 21 after they had further threatened them the authorities had threatened peter and john they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising god for what had happened there is adoration going on there is worship of god going on for the healing of this man that adoration continues then in verse 24 They lifted up their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. There is an acknowledgement here of who God is and what he has done. That should inform our prayers of adoration. For those of you who are in the How People Change class a couple weeks ago, our homework assignment was to pray 15 minutes uh, using the acts model. So about four minutes in each section, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Most of you have heard that before. You've probably tried that before. And we all got together in our group and we said, that was, that was pretty hard, right? It was, it was hard to slow down and to spend that time in prayer. And one of the things that I did and I shared with our, the guys group, I shared this at our men's time on Thursday as well. And this isn't I didn't read about this anywhere. This isn't something I've ever done before. I just, I was sitting there and I was, I started praying and I just walked through in my mind from the beginning of Genesis, kind of all the way through the Old Testament, kind of big picture, creation, flood, the call of Abraham, God's, you know, deliverance of his people out of the Exodus in Egypt, going into the promised land, just kind of these big moments, right? You could, You could sit down and and do that mentally, or you could open up your Bible and just walk through all of those things kind of up into the, to the new Testament and just praise God. You know, like God, you did this and that's amazing. Praise you for that. And, and then I, you know, when I finished that time and, and went into a time of confession, I was just like, God, if you could do all of that and you did all that and you continue to do all these things, why do I worry about my piddly little life and my circumstances, right? Why do I try to control all the things that are going on in my life? Why do I feel like it's all up to me when you've done all these amazing things? And so I would challenge you, uh, if you've done that Axe model and you've never done that before, try that, right? Just, Just walk through all the big events of the Bible 
and give God praise for what he's done. And then let that inform your confession. And it, it, that should in, inform your confession, right? So that's one thing that I found helpful. And I think as we look at this passage again, we think about how do we respond in the face of opposition? And I think going from that adoration to confession time, I think in our confession, we should probably realize we don't always respond well in the face of opposition, right? We don't really trust in the Lord. We don't really rest in him who is our sovereign Lord, who is the creator of all things. So let that be a challenge to us as we seek to pray adoringly. The next thing is that we should pray biblically. We see here in our text, there is an acknowledgement of who God is. He's the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then we see what he has done for us in Christ in verses 25 to 28, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. And there's the quote here of Psalm 2, which we Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2, which we already read. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There is an acknowledgement here of what God has done. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It was something that the people of Israel looked to uh, for future hope about the coming king, this coming anointed one, the son. As we saw that line there in the end, to kiss the son. And then as I prayed, the warning to the rulers, which would not have been lost in this context, in verse 10 through 12, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Notice how this first prayer meeting is biblically informed. The events surrounding Jesus' life and ministry are paralleled here with Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. If you had a had this printed out on a piece of paper and you were circling words and making connections, this would be super obvious. We can, we can look at it and walk through it here very easily. So Psalm 2 is quoted. Look at verse 27. Truly in this city, they were gathered together. Right. Look back at Psalm 2, right in the middle there. The rulers were gathered together. They were gathered against the Lord and against his anointed one. In Psalm 2, here they're gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. That's the claim that they're making here. That's where we get the word Christ, Christos. He is the anointed one. Both Herod, who was the king, right? Kings of the earth. And Pontius Pilate, who was the ruler, they were gathered together along with the Gentiles. Why did the Gentiles rage? Psalm 2, verse 1. And the peoples of Israel and the people's plot in vain. So very clearly here, 
They quote Psalm 2, and then they say, this is all about Jesus, right? This thing that was prophesied, this, this warning to turn, to kiss the sun, it was about the coming Messiah, and he's here. Rulers, kings, turn, right? Turn and kiss the sun, because if you don't, you will perish like the psalm said. And they've, Peter's been saying that already, right? Throughout. Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, the king, the son, in whose name the lame man was healed. That's why all of this has transpired. That's where all, why all this opposition is going on. Because they healed this guy, and he stands up, and he's praising God, and he goes into the temple, and they don't know what to do with it. This Jesus is a threat to the rulers and authorities. He is the plan of God. He is the predestined purpose of God. We've seen that already. Peter has been highlighting this. Peter and John have been highlighting this. Look back at verse 10 in chapter 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Go back to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We've talked about this already a couple times. We've talked about this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? We're always, people are always kind of wrestling with how do, we, how do we bring those two things together? Well, all three of these texts here in, verse, in chapters 2, 3, and 4 all give us the answer. You leaders and rulers who killed Jesus, you're guilty. You killed him. But it was God's plan. And you're not off the hook, right? And, it, and we have to live in that tension. I'm not going to come up here and say like, oh, well, here's the, you know, here's the Calvinist answer that solves all your problems. Like, I believe that and I think it's true, but there's some mystery still in there, right? We, at the end of the day, we have to say, I don't fully understand how this works. I don't fully understand how God could foreordain that these people would, would kill his son and that they would still be guilty for it, right? But he did it. And it's the testimony of scripture clearly over and over and over, not just here in Acts, right? So again, we have to live in that tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We see it again here in chapter four. I think the thing, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, if the greatest injustice of all time the death of the sinless son of God, if the greatest act of single greatest act of injustice ever done in human history was the predestined plan of God. How dare we not believe that God is in total control of our circumstances to suggest that he's not puts, tries to put ourselves above him, tries to say we're wiser than him. God killed his own son for our sake. How dare we try to say we, we know better. God is in control of our circumstances, even the hatred of the world and the persecution that we might undergo for speaking the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, I mean, we see it here, right? 
But it's still true today that the world hates the name of Jesus. Secular institutions are generally okay with generic God prayers, right? If you know any chaplains, uh, I know a few chaplains. Some of us know some chaplains. Chaplains are under great pressure oftentimes to kind of start to tend towards some universalism, right? Just this acceptance of, of everything, kind of flattening everything out and just in the name of God. I've been invited over the past couple of years to pray for a few different events for some secular institutions. And I always tell them, I'm a Christian pastor and I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. I, I'll accept your invitation, but I'm not going to come and just pray some generic prayer. I'm not going to pray to, you know, the, the, the universe or whatever. But clearly there's opposition to the name of Jesus, right? We see it all around us. But it's the only name that we saw last week in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 12. The only name given among men, under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. We must not shy away from that. We can't just speak generally about God. People will say like, well, you have your God and I have my God. And we can't, like, we can't start with that premise, right? We say there is one true God. There is one true Savior. And he's the only mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus. That leads us then into our next section. That we should pray boldly. So adoringly, biblically, and boldly. Look at the prayer in verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice what they don't pray. They don't say, Lord, this is really hard. These people don't like us. They're not being nice to us. And they don't say, please don't let us go to jail again, right? No, they pray with great boldness. Paul, in Ephesians chapter six, after he just finishes talking about the armor of God, I love this. I think we often skip over this section. We get so focused on the armor of God, but this is how Paul ends that section in Ephesians six. He's asking for them to make supplications for all the saints. And then he says, and also for me, this is Ephesians 6, 19, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He doesn't say pray for my deliverance. He doesn't say pray that they would give me better food here in prison. He says, pray that I would have boldness to speak to my captors about Jesus. We're called to do our part to speak, verse 29, and we ask God to do his part. For them, it was asking God to heal, to stretch out his hand to heal, for signs and wonders to be performed, which we see happening much throughout the book of Acts, and we'll have a lot more time to, to begin to unpack that as things unfold here, especially in chapter 5. I love 
how it ends here, that verse, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look back up at verse 27. They were gathered in the city together against your holy servant, Jesus. Obviously, when we see repetition, especially in a very short set of verses like that, we should pay attention, right? There's a reason they're calling him the holy servant, Jesus. This term servant would have brought to mind a couple different things. The suffering servant, which is what we see in verse 27, they're gathered together against him. The suffering servant from Isaiah 52 and 53. But we also see the power of the servant in verse 30. In Isaiah chapter 40, speaking of Isaiah chapter 42, speaking of the Lord's servant, it says, He will bring forth justice to the nations. The whole Bible is about Jesus, right? All of these things point forward to Jesus, the powerful suffering servant. How can we not pray that we would be more bold about him when all of scripture points to him? Another element of the boldness is in the words, look upon. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. If you have the ESV Bible and you have the cross references, the little little letters that are above the verses, Uh, referencing to to other places in scripture, you'll notice that for look upon, there's a a letter C that's raised there. And the reference is 2 Kings 19.16, Hezekiah's prayer. Now this is my favorite prayer in all of scripture. And the circumstances surrounding this prayer are fascinating. I invite you to turn there now. If you have the Pew Bible, that's on page 326, 2 Kings. Kings 19. Speaking of repetition, this entire account is also found in Isaiah 37. So uh, important that it's repeated in, in two places in scripture. So a little bit of context here for what's going on. Uh, back in chapter 18, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and his armies have surrounded Jerusalem. They're threatening God's people. They're saying, stop trusting in God. We've defeated all these other nations. And look at verse chapter 19, verse 10. Here's the message sent to Hezekiah. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. I'll keep going, actually. Uh, Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria, kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods that of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed? And then he lists all these nations. So the king of Assyria here is basically just saying, people of Israel, your God is no different than all these other gods, right? These other gods couldn't deliver their people, and your God is no different. He will not deliver you. From my hand. Now, look what happens here. Look how Hezekiah responds and look at the boldness in his prayer. Verse 14 Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messenger and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. 
he takes this threat, right? He takes this letter that says, stop trusting in your God. And he goes up and he spreads it out before the Lord. And this is how he prayed. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. You just saw that, right? In the disciples' prayer in Acts 4, God's the creator. He acknowledges. He doesn't start off with, oh God, help me, right? He adores God for who he is. He acknowledges who God is. In this bold move of spreading this letter out. And then look what he says. I want to ask us before I read this. Are we willing to pray like this? Are we willing to be this bold before God? Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. What? Like, God, pay attention to what's going on. That's what Hezekiah does here. Open your ears, God. Open your eyes. Hear and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. But they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, now he gets to his petition. After he's acknowledged who God is, God's power. Now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Boldness, desperation. Is this how we pray in the midst of our struggles? in the midst of our anxieties over work situations, over finances, over health issues, over strained family relationships? Do we just say, oh, God, please help so-and-so? Or do we pray boldly? God, see, see my situation. You alone are the one who can help, who can come to my aid. Do something. Do we cry out like that? And I love the end of the prayer here, which, again, is one of those things that might get missed. But don't miss this. Hezekiah prays for salvation so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The exclusivity of Yahweh here that he would save his people so that all the nations, all the nations who rage against God would see that he alone is God. That's the desire of Hezekiah here. That's the desire of the early Christians in Acts chapter 4. God, rescue us, deliver us, work through your people so that the nations who hate you, who are gathered against you, would see that they would know that they would turn to you. We're kind of familiar with this language, right? We say something like, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, every week. Does that just roll off our tongues in some rote kind of way? Or do we really believe that? Do we really pray that boldly? 
that God's kingdom and power and glory would come and be manifest in the earth through his people. Let's pray boldly, brothers and sisters. Finally, let's pray anticipatingly. I did look this up on wiktionary.com. It is a word. Anticipatingly. I went between this and anticipatorily, but that's a little harder to say. We should pray anticipatingly. Notice what God does here in Acts chapter 4. I should get back there. <laughs> he answers their prayer. And they expected him to answer. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The power that is available to all Christians to speak the word of God with boldness is the Holy Spirit of God. And most of us in and of ourselves are not naturally bold. Some of us are, are bold. We'll go up and just say anything to anybody, have a conversation with anybody. Most of us are, you know, the Midwest nice, kind of a little more reserved. Maybe we want to wait for somebody else to initiate. We're not out on the street corner with a megaphone talking to people about Jesus, which sometimes that's okay, right? <laughs> we need a power from outside of us that by the grace of God is now inside of us. But we need that external power to be able to speak with boldness. And that's what happens here. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Livingstone Church, we need boldness in our day and age to speak the word of God. We need boldness to speak it here and we need boldness to speak it out there. When we leave from here, when we go to our workplaces, some of us, maybe when we go back to homes where there are people who don't believe what we believe, who oppose our faith, we need boldness. Good Hope Presbyterian Church, you guys need boldness as you prepare to plant a church in Stevens Point. It's a huge undertaking, and it's not going to happen without prayer. It's not going to happen without God working by the power of his spirit to turn people's hearts in Stevens Point to him. So we need to continue to pray that way here, and we need to send you guys off with that type of prayer. I had a great opportunity this week to meet uh, Oshkosh, group of pastors in Oshkosh about, from about nine or ten different churches, usually meet monthly for lunch. Uh, it's a great time just to connect with one another and hear about different things that are going on. Had a great opportunity this past week. We met in Allenville, uh, at Allenville Baptist Church. So kind of a little bit north of here, just along the Weawash Trail, kind of out in the middle of nowhere a little bit. Uh, and we're sitting in the parsonage, Pastor Dave Isley, usually the host pastor kind of leads the time and the discussion time. And he's like, well, brothers, we're here we are. You look out into the, the fields, right? It's harvest time. And as we think about the time of year, as we think about our location and, and the harvest he asked, what, how are we thinking about the harvest in our own lives spiritually? How are we, what are we doing and, and, and what are we thinking about the harvest? And it didn't take me very long to, to think what I wanted to share as, as we were going around the circle. 
uh, you won't be surprised who I quoted from. And if you have your worship guide, uh, you can grab that. This quote from J.C. Ryle uh, is written in my prayer journal. I pray weekly for the church. Um, I pray through this prayer as I think about our evangelism, as I think about us uh, being salt and light here in Oshkosh and beyond. This is in his Matthew commentary in Matthew 9, the passage about the harvest being plentiful, but the workers being few, and to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is what I shared with the brothers and I now share with you. If we know anything of prayer, let us make it a point of conscience never to forget this solemn charge of our Lord's. Let us settle it in our minds that is one of the surest ways of doing good and stemming evil. Personal working for souls is good. Giving money is good, but praying is best of all. By prayer, we reach him without whom work and money are alike in vain. We obtain the aid of the Holy Ghost. Money can pay agents. Universities can give learning. Bishops may ordain. Congregations may elect. But the Holy Ghost alone can make ministers of the gospel and raise up lay workmen in the spiritual harvest who need not be ashamed. Never, never may we forget that if we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. I think I've quoted this here before uh, on a Sunday morning, mentioned it a couple times at our summer conversations. But this end line here, I think this goes together very well with Acts 4, with the way we should pray, especially with the boldness. Never, never may we forget that if we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. There are a lot of needs in our world, right? There are a lot of things that need to be done. There are a lot of things that our churches need to be doing, um, need to be doing more efficiently, need to be have more people, more resources. But at the end of the day, it's not just about strategizing. It's not just about putting all the pieces in place and, and saying, look what we did, right? If we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. And let all of that work that we need to do flow out of that, flow out of that desperate and bold prayer. Now, as the pastors shared on Wednesday afternoon, it was a great, probably one of the most encouraging times I've had with that group in a while. Um, everyone got to share about what's going on in their church, what's going on in their own personal lives, connections they have. And I tend to be a little more on the like Debbie Downer side of things at times, but I was really excited just hearing about what's going on, what's going on in Oshkosh. You know, we've been here six years and it feels like we talk about decades, not years, right? It's a, it's a long process. It's a slow process. And there's been times that have felt just really like just trudging through the mud, right? Like it's things are slow. But just seeing how God is awakening people and seeing things that are going on in our church, seeing things that are going on in other churches, it's really exciting. Now, I'm not saying like this is going to be Acts chapter four all over again, right? Like we're going to we're going to see signs and wonders and all this, you know, people hanging from the whatever that thing is. It's not that right. But God's going to awaken people. He's going to stir people's hearts. He's going to save people. He can do that. 
at any point in history. We talked earlier, 3,000 came to Christ on the day of Pentecost, and we said, could we even handle, like, could all the churches in Oshkosh even handle 3,000 people getting saved in one day? Probably not, but bring it on, right? Like, Lord, save people. Like, bring people in so that we may send them out and reach the world. We should pray that way. We should pray with anticipation. And I confess that I just often don't, right? We're so focused on our own little kingdoms, or we're so focused on difficult things going on in our lives. We don't we don't trust God. We don't trust that he can move in powerful ways in people's lives. But we've seen it, right? And we continue to see it. So let's be bold, brothers and sisters. Let's be bold in our prayers. Let's be bold in the way we speak to other people about Jesus. Because he is the only name by which people must be saved, right? We need to declare that. We need to trust that God is still at work. That God is still drawing people to himself. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for who you are. God, we adore you. We acknowledge that you are the sovereign Lord, the creator of all things. You are the sustainer. God, you are our redeemer. There is no hope apart from you. Thank you that you sent your son to come, to live among us, to die on the cross, the death that we deserved. Thank you that your wrath was poured out on him at the cross so that we might have forgiveness, so that we might have new life. God, help us to think and pray biblically, that we would pray your word, we would be in your word, that we would know your word, that your word would inform our prayers, that we would pray boldly. God, that we like Hezekiah would come before you and lay out any threats as it were before you and ask you, God, to hear and to see, to not be silent. God, to respond, to move to save people who are lost. And God, help us to pray with great anticipation for what you will do. God, God, trusting that you are the sovereign one. You are the powerful one. And as we continue to work our way through this great book, may we continue to be encouraged. May we continue to anticipate the work that you're going to do here among us. And again, the work that you're going to do as we send folks out to good hope. God, sustain us, empower us, equip us, give us all that we, we need. May our eyes remain firmly fixed upon you so that all those around, so that the kingdoms of the world would bow the knee to King Jesus and that you would be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.